Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. I'm your host and Bible guide, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Throughout this COVID-19 pandemic, Christians have been adjusting and finding new ways to encourage and edify one another. One of the things we're trying here at End of the Word is a live discussion program every Thursday evening at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. The program is called Going Deeper Online, and in it I will facilitate a conversation about the previous week's readings in the RMM Bible Reading Plan with several of my friends and fellow users. If you join us live on the End of the Word YouTube page or the End of the Word Facebook page, you can submit questions, and we'll leave some space at the end of each program to address them. You can also send in your questions over the course of the week via the Facebook page. Whether or not we keep doing this after the end of COVID-19 or not, only the Lord knows. But it is a privilege to open the Bible together and to hear from one another what the Lord is saying through His marvelous Word. Thanks be to God. So without further ado, welcome to another episode of Going Deeper Online. Hey there, friends. Pastor Paul Carter here from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Aurelia and the host of the End of the Word podcast, welcoming you to another episode of Going Deeper Online. As always, I am joined by some fabulous guests. We have my longtime friend, Pastor Mark Bertrand from Southwestern Ontario. We have now, am I allowed to say Dr. Miranda? Is that an official thing? Okay, I'm going to say it then. We have (laughs) Dr. Miranda Webster from the uh, deep in the heart of Texas there. We have uh, Pastor Jesse Stewart from uh, Glendale, Kentucky, and we have uh, Pastor Peter Mahaffey from Toronto, Ontario, Canada. So welcome to you, and thank you for being with me this week. Thanks for having us. Right on. Well, uh, before we get going this week, I just want to take care of a little bit of housekeeping. Uh, First of all, if if you haven't been able to find yet a copy of the RMM Bible Reading Plan, we want to help you do that, because obviously this will make more sense to you and will be more useful to you. If you're able to follow along at home, I would be so thrilled if one of the side effects of this uh, little program that we're doing during COVID-19 would simply be that uh, an, a great number of people found it a little easier to get into the RMM Bible reading plan. Um, I One of the things I firmly believe is that if you don't have some kind of plan for reading the Bible, then you're just planning not to read the Bible. Um, I, I know that there are some well-meaning folks who think they're just going to wake up every morning and flip and find something. Um, I don't know anyone who has developed a consistent pattern of Bible reading that way. This isn't the only plan for reading the Bible, but I, in my, for my money, it's the best. And uh, so if, if more people got on board with it, I would be thrilled. If, if you haven't found it yet, go to the End of the Word uh, website. So www.intotheword.ca. Click on the About tab, and then there'll be a link uh, that will take you to a version of the RMM plan that you can use and uh, just begin to follow along with us. We'd love for you to do that. Also wanna let you know tomorrow, Friday, May 22nd, we're gonna be releasing a batch of new episodes on the Psalms. So the End of the Word podcast follows the RMM Bible reading plan. You don't have to use it that way. In fact, 80% of the people don't. Um, But uh, the goal is to encourage you in your Bible reading. So uh, we're gonna be tracking with the Psalms for the next 18 or 19 days, God willing. As uh, Mark and I were talking about before we came on the air, uh, we've all learned the value of saying God willing. Uh, Mm -hmm. Our plan is uh, to release a batch of episodes that will cover from Psalm 75 to Psalm 101. 
uh, but we're going to put that out there as God willing. I have, uh, I have recorded up to, I think, Psalm 94, 95, so we're almost there, but again, God willing, lots can change, but that's our plan. That'll be available. You can find those wherever you find your podcasts. If you get the end of the word app, it'll be super easy for you to find that material and make good use of it. Also, it'd be helpful if you subscribed to the end of the word YouTube page, because we take the recording of this program and we stick it there and we'll put some other video resources there for you to make use of as well. All right. With all that house cleaning out of the way, Brother Peter, would you be willing to open our time in prayer this evening? Yeah, we'd be happy to. Father, we thank you for this time um, that we can gather just to talk about your word, Lord, and what we've been learning, what we've been wrestling through and thinking through. And Father, we pray that by your spirit, you would guide our conversation, that we would edify one another, that those who are listening or watching would also be edified. We pray that you would accomplish your purpose through this. And Father, we pray for anyone that uh, may not know you, that may be listening um, Lord, we pray that in your grace and in your mercy, you would grant them the gift of salvation. Lord, you have used um, more strange means than just this to save people. And so we pray, Lord, that you would do a mighty work here this evening and that we would all leave here with a deeper hunger uh, to know your word, to love your word, so that we would also, more importantly, cherish and treasure Christ. Mm -hmm. And we pray this in his precious name. Amen. Amen. Well, one of the things we want to do uh, with Going Deeper Online is we want to help you uh, get deeper into the books that you're reading, and that means providing a bit of an introduction for every new book that we encounter. This week, we only uh, started one new book, or one new letter in this case, and uh, it was the uh, second epistle of Peter. Uh, and uh, since I introduced First Peter last week, it makes sense for me to introduce uh, Second Peter. And Second Peter, we, we believe, along with the church, or I believe, along with the church, uh, in terms of church history, I believe was written by the same person who wrote First uh, Peter. In Second Peter 3, verse 1, he indicates that, that he had written to these folks before. So we take it that not only is this the same author as First as Peter, uh, but that it's also the same recipients as First Peter. So once again, this is the Apostle Peter writing to Christian folks living in uh, what today we would call uh, northern Turkey on the south shore of the Black Sea. The focus of 2 Peter is a little different than 1 Peter. In 1 Peter, he is uh, trying to buttress them or build them up or prepare them for threats that will come at them from the outside. Uh, he's trying to, in essence, um, stiffen them up, stiffen their resistance, as it were, as they begin to face the headwater or the headwinds of persecution from the Romans. Here in 2 Peter, the focus is now on sort of the enemy within. It appears that... Uh, the church had been infiltrated by a, a very early Christian heresy. Uh, based on what we can reconstruct from the New Testament, it seems that the first heresy uh, in the church is the one addressed in Paul's letter to the Galatians. We might call that the Judaizing heresy, the idea that before you become a Christian, you have to become a Jew, that you have to keep the law and believe in Jesus in order to be saved. That's the heresy uh, that Paul's addressing in Galatians. And then the second heresy appears to have been an overreaction to that. Uh, it's the heresy known uh, or referred to by scholars as antinomianism, the idea that as long as you believe in Jesus, you can really do whatever you like, and that since the law can't save us, then the law is meaningless, and it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how you live. You know, just believe in Jesus and do what you want. Sleep with who you want. Uh, conduct yourself however you like. As long as you got the right facts about Jesus, you are good to go. And uh, that appears to be, as I said, the second 
uh, heresy in terms of chronology that breaks into the church. It's the same heresy that's being addressed in 1 Timothy. It's the same heresy that's being addressed in Jude. And it's the heresy being addressed here in 2 Peter. And so that's the that's that's Second Peter in a nutshell. What what did I miss, and uh, what have you enjoyed as you have begun uh, making your way through uh, through Second Peter? What one of the things I really enjoyed in uh, first or Second Peter, I should say, Second Peter uh, two uh, verses two to three, he says um, that many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be maligned, and in their greed. They will exploit you with false words. And, you know, I think Peter's really, um, really um, uh, poignant here. He identifies the root of false teaching as not finally in the mind or in the cognition, but finally in the heart, in yeah. the affections. And so the root of false teaching is, is often and most, most poignantly found in the heart. And so uh, when, whenever we see false teaching uh, predominating in a given culture, for example, prosperity preachers like maybe Johnny Big Smile or others. Uh, many you, you may have to unpack that. <laughs> Joel, Unless you've been on really long car rides with uh, Jesse Stewart and Paul Carter, you you probably don't know who Johnny Big Smile is. Sorry, yeah. So like uh, Joel Osteen, uh, you know, pr prosperity preachers like Creflo Dollar, that sort of thing. They're they're making exorbitant amounts of money, buying multiple private jets, etc. Greed is one of the biggest roots. Mm -hmm. Um, of prosperity gospel preaching. And so this is this is a real, real big issue here. And I think uh, Peter points out poignantly what the root is. It's actually in the heart. It's in the volitional sphere, not just in the, in the Absolutely. mind. Absolutely. Yeah. We, I mean, if, if the Bible's clear about anything, it, it is that uh, we, what we want to be true is what we say is true, right? And, and so in essence, the will comes before the word. And, and, and that's, that's really the issue in that both Jude and Second Peter are addressing, that uh, these, these folks are twisting doctrine, they're intentionally distorting what really isn't that confusing. They're, they're basically uh, exaggerating things that the Apostle Paul said. Peter says that, which is fascinating. Mm -hmm. He says, these, these are people basically who are exaggerating the Apostle Paul. You know, we, we refer to the Apostle Paul as the Apostle of Liberty. But, but not the apostle of license, right? And that's what they were saying. They were saying, you know, hey, Paul says that we're saved by grace through faith. So don't talk to me about holiness. Don't talk to me about self-control. Uh, I'm, I'm with Paul on this one, saved by, saved by grace, so I can live however I want. That's what they were saying. And, and basically, they're distorting doctrine in order to give permission to their appetites. Mm -hmm. yeah. Absolutely. It's interesting, Paul. Like, I think um, one of the things I found really fascinating in this passage with the whole false teachers is... Um, I think in our modern context, we often tend to think of false teachers primarily, um, they're just teaching false doctrine. Right. But, but the emphasis in this passage, though there is false doctrine being taught, the emphasis is actually their conduct. Yeah. They're, they're living um, contrary to right doctrine, right? So they're not just undermining orthodoxy, they're undermining orthopraxy. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't know if we often think in those categories when we think of heresy or false teachers um, we primarily think of are they teaching a wrong doctrine but it's is their life actually aligned with orthodoxy how they live and so well, I, jesus said right you'll know them by their fruits yeah exactly so so i think that that really just stood out to me as i was reading this passage was the focus is so much on their conduct yeah yeah well said mark the, you look like you're jumping yeah, in. yeah one of the things i i love about the mcshane reading plan and there's no way Robert Murray McShane could have planned it. So it is just the providential hand of God um, 
that, uh, you know, we're, we're almost six months into this and reading Second Peter. And in Second Peter chapter 2, he's, he's illustrating his false teacher with stories about Balaam. Balaam, yeah. yeah. Reading in Numbers. And ne- tomorrow you're going to read the rest of the story of, of Balaam in Numbers 31. Yeah. And, and it's just fascinating how so much of the scriptures just fit together. And, and with, the, with this reading plan, how often you'll be reading from the Old Testament and the New Testament. And on subsequent days, it, it's just handling yeah. material that just fits together. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I noticed that I read a day ahead. So I noticed that this morning, uh, what I was reading in numbers this morning, you'll be reading tomorrow. And, and again, that's the story where they, you know, they find Balaam at the bottom of the pile, and they realize this whole uh, sexual immorality uh, ruse was his idea. Mm -hmm. That, uh, you know, Balaam says, you can't, he realized he can't curse what God has blessed. Mm -hmm. But he can get the Israelites to remove themselves from God's blessing, he can get them to curse themselves by by committing basically fornication and spiritual uh, idolatry so they they send the women in the pretty women in to invite them to the fertility feasts and rituals and they get the israelites to curse themselves and and it was you know it was balaam's idea that's balaam's error and that comes up again and again and again in the bible that that phrase balaam's error uh, the way of balaam sexual immorality yeah one of the things that i noticed is just how chapter one of second Peter and chapter two, um, there's kind of contrasting ideas. Like if you look at um, how often Peter is urging the people to know Christ, um, you see that in chapter one and verse two, three, five, six, eight, 12, and 20, there's this idea of like, know Christ, know him, and that the knowledge of God and the knowledge of Christ pertains to all of life. We, you know, Peter says that in chapter one, verse three, but it requires um, self-discipline and steadfastness. But then when we look at chapter two, this idea, there's a transition at the end of chapter one of true prophecy, true, what, like contrasting the truth from these false teachers. And so at that chapter, at the end of chapter one, he kind of moves into false prophets and false teachers and this false doctrine. And unlike the um, false teacher or false pro- prophet, the words are confirmed um, coming from God, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and that that false teachers and false prophes- uh, prophecy, they all share like common themes uh, that we've already talked about being destructive, denying Christ, sensual, full of greed, mm-hmm. they exploit and use people. And one of the things that as I was reading through chapter two, and really even in chapter one, the metaphors and the imagery and the descriptive language that Peter uses to describe um, one of the most, I found to be one of the most beautiful um, parts of the whole letter is at the end of chapter one, where he says in verse 19, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. I found that to be so beautiful. And then there's these contrastingly ugly descriptions of false teachers of being blemishes and um, they're irrational. Like he describes, you know, irrational, ignorant, deceived, adulterous, greedy, sensual. But then I just thought that that was so um, interesting how he kind of says no Christ. And then he gives this warning 
of why you should know him and dig in and to really fully know him. I, I don't know if that's making sense, but, and kind of a, a different application too. I had watched, um, I don't know how many of you guys have Netflix and have watched the documentaries um, called Waco, or you know the story of David Koresh mm -hmm. um, in Waco, Texas. And, and then there's a podcast that I also listen to. And of course, like that is such an example a modern day example, I would say, of fa a false teacher and a false prophet and leading people astray. And you could look for all of the characters characteristics that Peter's talking about in the life of David Koresh yeah. and, and see that kind of displayed in a modern example. Well, that's that, that's actually something I wanted to talk about. One of the challenges in applying this is to is to know what what should we be applying this to? Um, you know, we see this this really harsh language, as you say, like there's such a contrast painted between the beauty of the way of Christ and then the ugliness and viciousness of this, you know, road of false teaching. And so folks see that, that hard language, uh, you know, and, and I think of Galatians 5.12, where Paul says, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves, right? So, you know, really colorful language, hard language. And then they apply that to what I would really classify as intramural Christian, you know, debate debates that are are real and important but are not debates between orthodox christianity and heretics they're they're debates between you know various streams of of legitimate authentic christianity and so i think there can be a misapplication of the tone of of this and so let, help me understand that what does this passage tell us in terms of what is an actual heresy when we get to pull out this kind of language and rhetoric well i think um, one, I think you're right in that most of our fighting is with probably other sheep who just have a little bit of different colors or a little more dirt, or at least we think they have more dirt than, than we yeah. do. Yeah. Um, but there are actually legitimate wolves as well. And yeah. um, we don't play games with wolves. But when I look at the text, I think one thing that we ought to be looking for is, which I mentioned earlier, their conduct. Yeah. Um, are they living contrary to sound doctrine are they, living, are they living contrary to the gospel so that's one um yeah. rare that we need to be looking for for sure yeah yeah i would agree any anything else that we can see because i mean i would i would imagine that not all heretics are immoral um not all heretics you know are are sexually deviant uh so what what else should we be looking for other than you know moral conduct i would say what they have to say about christ if they're mm -hmm. calling themselves a god or the second coming or a new, a new um, prophet even, like adding to the scripture. So what they say about Christ or what they say about the Trinity, what they say about the word of God, um, those are, you know, that's a first order issue that we yeah. would be able to call that um, idea uh, unorthodox or outside of the bounds of what the scriptures say about himself, what God says about himself through the author authoritative word of God. But part of that, again, is kind of what Peter is talking about. You have to know who Christ is. You have to know the claims that Christ made and um, through things like this of reading the word and being accountable. Um, so I would say like knowing the difference between first order, order issues and then like third or fourth or preference to knowing um, things that you prefer versus what's actually like, the scriptures at stake. Absolutely. Brother Mark, you look like you're jumping in. 
Yeah. Well, um, I think we, we, we need to beware of uh, searching out heresy. Um, yes. You know, we, I find you and I've had this experience before. There's certain conferences you go to and you go with a high level of con confidence and comfort because you don't suspect that there's going to be any sort of questionable stuff coming from the platform. And there's other conferences you go to and you're like, oh, man, you know, your radar is up. Um, and, and I think we just have to be really careful. At the end of the day, uh, the question I want to ask uh, before I declare something to be a heresy or someone to be a heretic is, if a person were to believe this and invest themselves in what this person is teaching, would that bring ruin to their life? Or would it bring them to redemption? I, I've met all kinds of people who have been saved in churches that I wouldn't recommend to them. Um, but there's enough light there for them to come to the knowledge of the gospel. And so that's not heresy. That's there's there's questionable practices. There's situations and issues there that I think, boy, I, I wouldn't say it that way. And I, I don't like how that person says that. And I don't think that means we don't disagree, but I, I think we have to be careful how we disagree so that we don't present that as um, this person is completely outside of, uh, of the gates. Yeah. yeah, there are many there are many categories between, you know, theological ally and rank heretic. And, yeah. and you know, that's the, we probably need a few spaces between those. Uh, and that would be helpful. It's interesting to notice the observable heresies in the New Testament that that attract this kind of language. Right. So there's there's the Judaizing heresy that we mentioned. That's a significant heresy. Right. Like anytime you're saying you have to believe in Jesus and follow the Mosaic law and like anytime you're, you've got an and that's that's a heresy. Right. Uh, and then you've got antinomianism, which we figure was the sort of second heresy on the scene. That's a big deal, right? Because you're saying the law is useless and, you know, live however you want, sexual immorality. Yeah, let's go for it. Uh, that's that's a big deal. And uh, and then the third heresy that we can identify is um, the one that's in focus in First John, which is the idea that Jesus didn't come in the flesh, right? Like that, that he only appeared. I mean, you're denying the, you know, if you're denying the incarnation, if, if you're saying that you've got to keep the law and to believe in Jesus, and if you're saying you can, you know, have sex with whomever you want, those are legit, like, full-on heresies. That's what attracts this kind of language. You know, the, the, the differences that, that exists kind of between Christian A and Christian B today probably don't, uh, don't justify the use of this kind of tone or, or language, even though those are legit conversations and, and things that, that have every right to be discussed and should be discussed vigorously, but, you know, in love, with gentleness and respect. So, yeah. Good. Uh, in, sorry, Jesse, you wanted to jump in there. Just to quickly add to that, I, th I think that's excellent. I think also in, in 2 Peter 2, verse 2, uh, we see many, um, uh, sorry, verse 1, even denying the master who bought them. Mm -hmm. And so if we are if we find a false teacher who is denying uh, some important attribute of God, like his godness, yeah. his deity, mm -hmm. like what we see in uh, Pelagianism, where right. Jesus is the firstborn of creation, right? Like he's, he's the most preeminent, but yet he's not God. We see them dethroning God in some manner. Uh, then I, I think that would be one of the most obvious applications of second Peter too. Yeah. hundred percent. Sticking in second Peter, uh, I figured normally we start in the old Testament kind of work our way forward, but since I introduced second Peter, it makes sense to, to stick here for a minute. Chapter three had some very interesting things as well, and eschatology has has sort of been a taboo subject in evangelical circles. Um, I'd say at least for the last twenty years, maybe more. 
Uh, in the late 90s, I think things sort of went sideways and we developed a bit of an embarrassment, a bit of an allergy to eschatology. Um, but the reality is that's another great reason for using a Bible reading plan because it doesn't allow you to pick and choose your passages based on your allergies. Uh, you just have to read what's there. And when you read what's there, there's a lot of eschatology there. So you better figure it out and you better get over your allergy and deal with it. It's obviously important or there wouldn't be so much of it. Um, and first Peter or second Peter chapter three is one of the, you know, uh, main passages in the new Testament, I would say on eschatology. Uh, Peter, Peter has a lot to say. He reminds them that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So a couple interesting things in that passage, you know, Peter says that uh, part of the reason some people uh, don't believe in eschatology or scoff at what the Bible says about the end of all things, by the way, I should define eschatology is just a fancy word that means teaching about the end of all things. And the Bible is filled with teaching about the end of all things, how the world wraps up. And Peter says, you know, one of the reasons people scoff at it is because things can stay the same for long periods of time. Um, you know, and we, we can we can actually get lulled into thinking that that history just moves forward slowly, incrementally. And Peter says, no, no, no. The Bible talks about cataclysms that change everything. Right. Things can tick along very nicely for a long period of time. And then there's a cataclysm. There's a plague. There's a flood. There's an event that changes the course of history. But there can be long stretches of quiet. And in those stretches of quiet, we can be tempted to think that everything will just carry on the way it's always been. But Peter says, we know that's not the case. We've seen in the biblical record, we've seen these cataclysms. And he says, and we know that the Lord, there's no, I love what St. Augustine said, there is no human analogy for the divine sense of time. And so a thousand years is like a watch in the night, right? And so God's playing this long game, but you can count on this. He's got another cataclysm in the bag. And that cataclysm, you know, is going to bring in, in his purposes. That's what he's saying. What interests me about that is, again, just this reminder that God's playing the long game. It's that, that the slowness of eschatology is actually what causes some people to scoff. But then also the purpose of the slowness. The reason for the slowness is not that God is dull or, you know, or, or that he loses interest. The purpose of the slowness is because God is merciful and desires all to come to repentance. I, I just find that absolutely fascinating. And here's my question. You know, I grew up in, an, in the evangelical world. Mark, you and I grew up in the same kind of evangelical subculture. And in the subculture we grew up in, the expectations seemed to always be, or the sense seemed to always be, that Jesus is going to return imminently, tomorrow. Uh, if I had a dollar for every time somebody told me that they were absolutely sure that the Lord was coming back in the next 10 years or whatever, I would have many dollars, right? And, 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 and yet, 
you know, here we are, right? And so I guess I'm asking this, what's the right biblical attitude? How do I want to be uh, tuned as a person? Do I want to have this sense of immediacy? Jesus is coming back tomorrow. Or, or do I want to take this passage seriously? Or do I want to have that long, slow view? What's the right perspective? Is Jesus coming back immediately? Or should I, should I be settling in for the long haul? Uh, so I'll say this right away. Imminently. Yes. Do not be surprised if he arrives tomorrow and all of your plans and contingencies for COVID-19 go out the window. Don't presume that it is a long way off. Yeah. But also, don't sell all your stuff and go wait on a rooftop for his return. I mean, Jesus mm -hmm. says to his disciples, Acts chapter 1, verse 7, they said, Are you now going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He says, It is not for you to know the day or the hour. And then he commissions them to go and be witnesses, which I think is a, that's the one of the most important passages mm -hmm. when it comes to how we conduct ourselves as end times people. Yeah. I, I think we're... Uh... We're to have the mindset that that anticipates the coming of the Lord at any moment. Right. But we're not to get caught up in trying to figure out the detail of when that may be. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So like even in this passage, it's interesting. Peter, you know, speaks about the coming of the Lord, but he never then begins to break down. Well, what's it going to look like or when's it going to happen? He then says in verse 14, therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace so the, the and, and he goes on to say and count the patience of our lord as salvation right yeah so so the focus is yes be ready the, you know in in first peter chapter four he ends with the lord is at hand and then he tells us to live in light of that but not get caught up in trying to figure out the signs and the times because that's just going to distract you from actually pursuing holiness mm -hmm. yeah you, you the flow of the argument in in this chapter seems to be um that because the Lord, because there's a cataclysm, and the cataclysm could come at any moment. It could come tomorrow, or it could come 5,000 years from now. Mm -hmm. That as a result, we should be ready, but we should not be obsessed and distracted. Mm -hmm. uh, that, and he, basically, the, the, the behavior he recommends is, you know, sanctification and evangelism, right? Mm -hmm. Like, so make sure that you're without blemish. Make sure you're ready. Like, you, you don't want to be hung over when Jesus comes, right? So work on your sanctification and work on your evangelism, right? So uh, count the patience of the Lord as salvation. Use this time to reach your friends and loved ones. Um, so holding those two things together results in good Christian behavior, right? Yeah. And I, I, would, just, I would just add that um, as Christians, we ought not be afraid of the Lord's return. Yeah. Um, I, I had a dear sister uh, message me in light of this whole pandemic. And, and she asked, you know, is, the, is, this, is this the end? Is the Lord coming back? I'm yeah. terrified. Mm -hmm. And I said, I don't know if this is the end. Pandemics aren't new. They've happened before. But if this is the end, then as Christians, we ought to be full of excitement and joy yeah. that the Lord is coming back. Yes, it's a day of judgment, but it's also a day of vindication for his people. And yeah. so there's nothing for us as Christians to be fearful of unless we're found not ready. Right. But we want to be you're ready. Over. Right. <laughs> yeah. 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 Or scrolling your cell phone and uh, missing yeah. out. But yeah, um, yeah. You know, that, that's a day of, of rejoicing for the people of God. And so if it's tomorrow, praise God. If it's 100 years from now, praise God. Right. So. Yeah. The other. Sorry, Jesse, you go ahead. Oh, you go ahead. You okay. Go. So uh, even in chapter two, we have two. Um, Peter reminds us of two ancient 
talks about the ancient world, right? The flood and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and how the people were living their lives. They were not anticipating the coming destruction of the flood. Um, and they weren't anticipating the ultimate destruction of the cities of so Sodom and Gomorrah. So I think in that there's a warning, but he goes on to say, you know, that um, in verse nine, chapter two, nine, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passions and despise authority. So there's this idea, idea of, okay, judgment is coming in the second coming of Christ, the day of the Lord will come, yet persevere, be diligent, as we've already said, and the Lord will keep you. He will, just like Lot, just like Noah, you will be, you will persevere because of the great mercy of God. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if those two things tie together, but in my mind, that kind of, they were uh, small <laughs> days of the Lord, if you will. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, these little birth pangs. Yeah. yeah. Jesse, do you want to jump in? Yeah, it, you know, in Jesus' Olivet Discourse, Matthew 25, right, we see the parable of the virgins teaching a both-and approach, which is, I, I think that's, it's not an either-or, uh, you know, uh, approach. I think it's a both-and. Uh, you know, the maids were uh, making sure, uh, some of them were making sure that their oil was ready for when the bridegroom arrived. They were to be ready for the bridegroom at a moment's notice. Yeah. We, need to, we all need to be good maids, ready with our oil, ready, prepared for the bridegroom to arrive. But if you notice, and I think Leon Morris is, is uh, great pointing this out. If you notice, they actually all carried on with their regular pattern of life. They all went to sleep. Yep. And nowhere in this text are any of the maids rebuked for going to sleep for carrying on as normal. Yeah. Uh, the warning only comes after the maids arise from sleep and see the master coming and some have been unprepared. And so Matthew 25 teaches us a both and approach, you know, our attitude yeah. should be ready. If Jesus is coming back at any moment as if he's coming tomorrow and yet plan as if he's coming back in a thousand years. So get your accounts right with God, then put your hand to the plow every day as per normal and make sure Jesus finds you working hard when he returns. Yeah, exactly. That's what I love about the Olivet Discourse. I mean, that those two perspectives are are really well represented in the parables. You've got the parable of the wise and foolish servant, right? Like the the one who isn't prepared when the master comes comes home. He he starts get he's getting drunk, he's beating, you know, and and so he he wasn't ready. And all so the parable seems to be all the the assumptions of the parable is that it could be much longer than you think, right? That's that's part of the narrative of even the parable of the virgins. The, the groom was much longer uh, and greatly delayed. And, and that sets up the drama. And, and so all the parables seem to be hinting that this could be way longer than you think. But they're also saying, but be ready because, you know, he can appear at any hour. Mm -hmm. And I, I would argue that if you if your eschatology doesn't hold both of those things in tension, then you won't be living right as a Christian. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I don't want to be controversial here, but but. I'm going to suggest that actually, I think we're in need of a correction uh, because in the 80s and 90s, I think there was um, an eschatology obsession and it was a particular obsession. It was a, an escapist obsession. So you, again, I don't want to be controversial, but I, I do think all ideas should be challenged. And, and I think there was a system, the, the sort of premillennial dispensational system that, that, that fostered an expectation that of immediacy. Jesus is coming back now. We could all be raptured. You know, our we people were nervous about flying because you know you don't want a Christian pilot to be raptured out of his his uniform and and we'll all crash into the ocean. 
And there was such a sense of immediacy that this could happen now, this could happen. And, and all the literature and all the, the radio programs were fostering the sense of immediacy that there wasn't that long, there was, we had lost the sense of this could be a while. We've lost the sense of there's no guarantees that this is gonna be immediate. And so there was less investment in infrastructure, Christian infrastructure. There was, there was less of a sense that, are you building anything that will be here in a thousand years? And, and, and so I think we erred on, on one side of the equation and, and we lost some of that. It could be a long time, but that's not to say we wanna find the ditch on the other side to lose the immediacy. Because if you lose the immediacy, then you live wrong as well. And it's very hard to keep these things together. Yeah, now, maybe I've misdiagnosed things. It, did you see that as well? Well, 80s and 90s, I was a kid, so. Yeah, so you were probably <laughs> part of the problem. But, but yeah, <laughs> um, I, th I think what's happened in light of what happened in the 80s and 90s, my generation almost became indifferent to eschatology. Yeah. We didn't focus on it. Honestly, even in seminary, like there was any real, rarely any real teaching on it. And it, it seemed like it caused such division that the way to deal with the division was just to kind of yeah. let it all go. Mm -hmm. But I actually do, I hope that, and I don't think I'm the guy for it, but I hope that God would raise up a, a new generation of people who would not allow that division to, to breed, but would be intense on studying this itch, issue because mm -hmm. it's important. And, and for us to have, because it's, it's all about the hope that we have that's coming. Yeah. So, um, so I do think you're right about that. I, I, I was involved in a church in Ottawa that was pre-trib dispensational. And there was this, and I, I love the church, love the pastor, but there was this mentality of, well, you know what? Jesus coming back anymore. Moment yeah. Oh, I heard that all the time. Oh, yeah. it's not, who cares? It's not going to work. Jesus is going to come back next year anyway. Who cares? Yeah. Yeah. And it's, yeah. it's and it, 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 it leads to irresponsibility. Yeah. That's what it leads to. And, um, and indifference to issues that are happening in our society. So. So I, I'm 46 years old, which, which is an interesting age to be with respect to this conversation. I'd say for the first half of my life, I was in a church culture that, uh, you know, that was obsessed with eschatology. All we talked about is, you know, when is the rapture going to come? Is this American president the Antichrist? Is this, you know, figure in the Middle East the Antichrist? It was just, there was an obsession. But then I think when a lot of, we got tired of that, there was a bit of eschatology burnout. And now for the last 20 years of my life, there's been, it's, it's like crickets. It's, no conversation about eschatology, despite that it's it's like 30% of what's in the Bible. So I, I do think we have to recapture an appropriate balance. And, and the Bible seems to be making the point that if you don't have the right balance on eschatology, you won't have the right balance in terms of your Christian ethics, that there is a combination between eschatology and ethics. And you can see that transition right here in the text in Second Peter chapter 3. Before we go on, I don't yeah. know if you're wanting to move on, but would you say for some listeners um that the main controversy so there would you like maybe is it around how long christ is coming um is it the thousand year reign is that really where people differ or is there um other things like you know because most people would say yes jesus is coming back um unless i think a millennial and they think that the current um, the time of the church is really the reign of Christ, right? I, I guess maybe just a short little tidbit may be helpful of the true controversy, what it... Well, there, I mean, there's more than one, uh, uh -huh. meaning there are controversies with respect to some of the details, uh, for sure, uh, whether the, the millennial reign of, of Christ is something that will happen, uh, you know, after his, after his return, whether it's different than the eternal kingdom, 
Um, so there are, there are folks, interestingly, most of the Puritans uh, were what's called, what we would call post-millennial or amillennial. So they actually believed that the gospel would slowly but surely progress, that it would spread throughout the world like yeast through dough, um, and that the world would gradually become more and more Christian. Uh, they did believe in, in a little something they called Satan's little season. So they thought that near the end, there would be a, 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 a burst of opposition to the gospel, which would then be finally overcome by the return of Christ. That was the majority view, I would say for most of Christian history, but particularly uh, during the Puritan era. And then, and then a, a counter idea was sort of introduced or, or gained ascendancy in the late 18th century. Uh, well, no, I guess it would be 19th century and 20th century. This idea that, uh, that you know, there would be a rapture, that the church would be removed, uh, that then there would be a, a great, so there was an expectation that actually things would get worse and worse and worse. That was the, that was the difference. Uh, for most of Christian history, we expected things to get better. Uh, that the church would grow and grow and grow. Then the expectation shifted all the way the other way around. We thought the church would shrink and shrink and shrink. The world would get worse and worse and worse. And then Jesus would, would sort of yank us out. Um, there would be a great cataclysm. And then we would return with Jesus to reign. And I would just say what you believe about those two, I think does um, affect how you engage with the world. Uh, it, it, do you think uh, that we should be building institutions now that might might exist and bring benefit to the world a thousand years from now? Uh, do, do you expect the gospel to grow? Um, one of the things that, that I've wrestled with is the, the sense of the lack of optimism around the power of the gospel. Um, do you think the gospel will triumph? Do, do you think that, that, that the church will be pure and spotless when Jesus comes back for the church? Or do you think that she'll be the rags and tatters that she is now? Um, I, I think that, again, I think that matters. I think it affects how you pastor. I think it affects how you evangelize. Mark, do you want to jump in? You've lived through the same ups and downs and twists and turns that I have. And I, and I think your journey on this stuff has largely uh, run parallel to mine. Yeah, yeah. And, and I, I have a number of friends that are uh, you, you and I grew up in a in a dispensational circle and then yeah. departed that and probably have similar stories. There's lots of people that haven't and and I wouldn't want and I don't think you would want anybody no. who's listening to this and said, no, I'm a dispensational. This is the ultimate intramural conversation, right, between good Christian yeah. brothers and sisters. You know, that we value th those people, love them and and yeah. and, and uh, have good conversations with them. The one thing I, I think that we that, that I see is um, the end of the Cold War in mm. the early 90s was the end of, of that sense of a imminent threat. Yeah. I really think in some ways the church kind of ran alongside culture and baptized in some way the sense of impending doom. Yes. Um, and, and that's probably why those things held such sway because you notice they sort of faded away as that sense of, like one push of a button could sink the whole world into nuclear war. Well, I've heard it argued that basically dispensationalism grew and grew and grew basically from the end of World War One yeah. to the end of the Cold War. Yeah. Because World War One was the death of optimism in the culture, right? The guns of August put an end to all our sense of progress that these great Christian nations would, would, you know, thrive and bring about utopia. Yeah, nonsense. These great Christian nations just invented really good weapons with which to kill a great mass of humanity. So there was, that was the death of, you know, the, the idea of progress. But then, as you say, all, 
leading up to the Cold War, there was this impending sense of doom that the world is headed towards ruin and can't wait for Jesus to take us out. But then that sense of doom, the sort of Damocles lifted at the end of the Cold War. And so our eschatology began to shift. It is interesting. It's a, it, if nothing else, it's a reminder to edit our cultural assumptions when we go to the Bible, uh, because we, we often read our Bible through the lens of the newspaper. Mm -hmm. It seems, uh, going back to what Miranda was saying, that the, the issue wasn't so much the difference in beliefs with eschatology in the 80s. The yeah. issue was is that we treated it like a first order issue. Yes, yeah, that's, that's right. So we were defining orthodoxy by it. Yeah. So that like even my father, when he was in the Philippines, the reason why he came back was because that's could, right. I forgot about that. He could no longer sign the doctoral statement because his views on eschatology changed. He he got pulled as a missionary because he's he's shifted from dispensationalism to amillennialism. I remember that. Yeah. So that's a, that, that's that was the main issue. Yeah. Yeah. Which goes back to what we were talking about in the beginning of when to call someone a heretic and when not. And this yeah. is clearly an example of when not to call someone a heretic when you differ on yeah. eschatology. So yeah, I mean, this is a, a great example of a conversation that's worth having. Like, I don't, yeah. I would hate for us to say, well, no, we can't talk about this because right. we, all, we all love Jesus. No, no, this is really important because as Peter says, if we don't find the middle ground on this, if we don't find a way to maintain imminence, the idea that we must be ready, a cataclysm could happen tomorrow that would change everything. So we must be ready on the one hand, but we also must face the fact that God plays a long game. Mm -hmm. I am totally open to the fact that Jesus could come back tomorrow or 10,000 years from now. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I'm resolved to live my life between those tensions. Mm -hmm. I think that's the only way you can live a fully orbed Christian life. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's not a, but if you, you know, put the bar over here and I put the bar over here and if we define the sweet spot slightly differently, well, yeah, we're not going to fight about that. That's for sure. We're going to love each other, but it's an important conversation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, one more thing. I realize we, we went real long there, but I guess it doesn't matter. I mean, it's not, we don't have to necessarily get through everything, but I, I would like to have a, a, a conversation about canon because one of the most interesting verses in the New Testament, I would say, with respect to the conversation about canon, comes in the next verse after what we've been talking about. In 2 Peter 3.15, uh, Peter says, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation. So that's that's you know what we were just talking about. Use this delay, however long it lasts, to get busy in the work of evangelism. But then he goes on to say, just as our beloved brother Paul, the Apostle Paul, also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters. So here Peter is assuming familiarity with multiple letters of Paul. Uh, as, he, as he speaks in all these, uh, when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So here's Peter assuming a knowledge of Paul's letters in his congregations in northern Turkey um, and referring to them as scripture. So placing on them, placing them on a par with Isaiah and Jeremiah and the Psalms. Uh, that is fascinating in a couple different ways. And a great opportunity to, to talk about the canon. Uh, absolutely fascinating to realize that very early on, I mean, scholars. Uh, you know, who take seriously the, the Petrine authorship of this letter suggests that it couldn't have been written much later than AD 63, given that, you know, Peter was killed under Nero. Uh, so very early on in the history of the church, there is an emerging systematic theology. People are wrestling with, you know, the things Peter said, and how do they go with the things Paul said, and how does that go with what John said, and how does that go with what James said? And there's an emerging canon. There, there's a body of letters that are considered authoritative, foundational 
uh, documentation with respect to the New Testament Bible. So Jesse, I know you've done some work on canon. Uh, in, in your estimation, how early do, do we have something like a, a, you know, a Christian Bible, a New Testament? Uh, what was the process by which some letters were considered part of that foundation and others not? Uh, walk us through some of what you've learned with respect to canon. Yeah, absolutely, Pastor Paul. There certainly was a development in the recognition of the 66 books of the Bible as scripture. And I think Dr. Rob Plummer is really helpful here. Uh, he says that the New Testament canon was completed when the last book was written uh, <laughs> around AD 90. That's when it was completed. And, and so that would be Revelation, I'm assuming. Correct. Yeah. But there would there was a process in which that was universally recognized in the widespread, diverse early church. And so there is this period of discernment, uh, we might call it after the apostles wrote their books, where the early church discerned what books were from the apostles uh, right. or not. Uh, the first time we actually see a listing of the 27 books of the New Testament canon is in a letter from Athanasius in 367 AD, his Easter letter, his festal letter. Um, and in that letter, we get that. And, uh, and then afterwards, of course, uh, we have two more councils, the Council of Hippo Regius and also Carthage in the late 300s. There we actually get the 27 book New Testament canon as formally recognized. So it was not a status given as authoritative, uh, but as recognized by the early Christian community. Now, some people will quote that, right? And they'll say, wow, the New Testament was wide open. It's it, for 400 years. The church just decided after 400 years that the books we were going to keep uh, were, these, were these books. But no, this was not the case. Christians always held to these books, these 27 books as authoritative, but this was when they were formally recognized. You know, part of understanding uh, the Roman world was understanding that there was no, uh, you know, phone calls, there was no internet, uh, they could not have these kind of intramural debates, kind of like what we can do over Zoom right now. Uh, but instead, they had to travel hundreds of maybe maybe even uh, 200 or more miles to, to reach each other. So one person's got, you know, the um, the first Peter, one person's got, you know, Galatians, and then they're, they're looking at those and they're, they're trying to copy those and they're trying to understand, you know, what, what is in, what is out. Of course, there is some spurious literature, you know, like the, the gospel of Peter, you know, the shepherd of Hermas, third Corinthians, you know, things that were, that were thrown in there. There, after the new Testament books were written after AD 90, we have this period of discernment um, in the early church. And obviously, you know, in the Lord's providence, he worked through this method of, of discernment uh, to weed out all of that, which is non-apostolic. And so and there, uh, there really wasn't a lot. One of the things you hear all the time, you know, it baffles me what, what passes uh, as reliable truth on the internet. Um, but one of the things you hear all the time is that there was this sort of you know, quite heated contest between various books, right. uh, who would be in, and it was, it was, you know, a lot of jostling. Th there's no evidence of that at all. Like, there, there, there are no books that we're aware of that were at any point considered serious contenders for the canon. And, and there, are, there are only uh, a couple of the short books, uh, Second Peter actually being one of them, Second Peter and Jude, uh, were really the only, only books that eventually made it into the canon that were at any point in suspicion. Um, and, and that was largely just because they were, they were short, they were, and they were similar to each other. So there had to be some sorting out as to how they came to be, mm -hmm. but there really wasn't this jostling that, that you sort of hear about on the internet. 
Yeah. And Eusebius, you know, an early church historian in the early 300s, he said that in his time, there was books which were universally confessed as true, yeah. those which were debated and those which were rejected as spurious. We're not given the number count, you know, on, on how many were rejected as spurious or, or debated, but there certainly were some, there, there was a discernment uh, period uh, at this time. Now, um, you know, I think we've got some, also some internal witness, like what we're seeing here in, uh, in Peter that uh, Peter is recognizing Paul's writings as scripture. You know, um, so uh, Colossians 4.16, Paul's talking about copying the letter and sending it to another yeah. church and returning the letter. And so there's a, a recognition that these writings are more than just a specific occasional writing for a particular congregation. They have universal authority, and we find that in the writings themselves. And, you know, this is, this is a, a major difference between how we understand canon and our Catholic friends understand canon. We believe that the scriptures have inherent authority that we recognize. Yeah. And, and our Catholic friends would say, uh, no, uh, those scriptures are invested with the authority of the Which church. Which is why they had no problem, you know, in essence, adding books at the Council right. of Trent, right? They, right. They, our, our Roman Catholic friends would say that the church makes the Bible. We would say the other way. We'd say, no, 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 the Bible makes the church, right? The, right. And uh, so that's, I mean, that's a fundamental, that's a fundamental difference uh, to be sure. Right. Yeah. Right. Mark, were you looking to jump in? Nope. Oh. Okay. I think, yep. uh, like go ahead, Peter. Just, um, you know, for me, I, it's funny how this has caused so much controversy for some people, but if you really believe in the God of the Bible, like who yeah. he is, and you believe in the Holy Spirit, even if there was controversy, you like there's always going to be controversy dealing with sinful people but do we do we trust god enough to take care of his revelation right and and whether that's over a period of time and it's kind of like doctrine right doctrine doesn't just come out of nowhere it develops like the new testament assumes the trinity everywhere right but the actual unpacking of the doctrine of the trinity takes two to three hundred years even longer yeah. i think for us to really get a concrete uh, and clarity when it comes to the doctrine of the Trinity. So, um, and that's just how the Holy Spirit works through his, yeah. through, through his people. And I think as Christians, I just, I don't even struggle with that. It's, um, yeah. no, you're right. I mean, the Bible's a miracle. It, it, it really is. It's a miracle. So you can believe it as, as a miracle. I receive it as a miracle, but it's also the best attested book in human history, right? Uh, I did my undergraduate work in classics and religious studies at York university and of course, York is, is not a, a university known for its love and fidelity to Jesus. Um, but uh, you, you can ask any classics scholar at York University, and they'll tell you the Bible is the best attested book in human history, right? Uh, just, just by way of comparison, the most famous person other than Jesus from that time period was, of course, Tiberius Caesar. Uh, we have four sources for the life of Tiberius Caesar. Uh, the earliest of those is ninth century. The second earliest is 16th century. You know, we have complete manuscripts of, of the Gospels from the 4th century. We have fragments from very early, 2nd uh, century, certainly. Uh, you, know, you know, there's debates right now as to whether we have 1st century, whatever. But we have full manuscripts from the 4th century. So you can read a 4th century manuscript of the Gospel and compare it to an 18th century, 19th century, 20th century, 21st century manuscript, and notice that the text has not changed. It is the best attested book in ancient history. In fact, Peter Gentry 
uh, who, by the way, or Peter Williams, I should say, everybody should follow Peter Williams on Twitter. Uh, he, he tweets, he's the only guy I know who tweets on Canon pretty much. <laughs> um, but he says that the contest for the best attested book in history is a contest between the gospels and the Psalms, meaning it's not even a contest between the Bible and other books. It is a contest between books of the Bible. Uh, it is just a miraculously well-attested text. I also love that there are copies of copies of copies that we have like, I think if the numbers, if I remember correctly, we have like 500 or 400 copies of Homer, but we have like 23,000 oh, yeah. copies yeah. of the New Testament. So they're like- It was that. clearly the most read book in the ancient world. Mm -hmm. And even the mo like modern, um, like the Dead Sea Scrolls, when we found those, they, again, just reiterating what you said, they just aligned with what we already had. So it's very fascinating. There's so much we could read and talk yeah. about that. And we could talk about this for hours, but there's a conversation I want to have tonight and I want to make sure that we leave room for it. So I want to hit it now. Uh, so we can just jump back in our Bibles, uh, as it were, to, to Numbers. Uh, I want to talk about a very obscure passage that we ran across in Numbers 27. When I say obscure, I mean obscure to us here in, in the Western world. I'm assuming that most of us watching are, are from the Western world. Um, but it's a very significant text I discovered in Israel. In 2011, I was in Israel and my wife was pregnant. And so we were thinking about baby names. And every uh, waitress I ran into in Israel was named either Terza or Noah, N-O-A. I'd see it on their name tags. So finally, I asked, uh, you know, one of these uh, waitresses, I, I said, you know, I see that your name tag there says NOA. And I, I, I said, at home, Noah is a popular boy's name, but I don't know of it as a girl's name. I said, but every waitress in Israel is named Noah. What's up? And uh, she said it, it came from that passage in Numbers 27, the daughters of Zelephahed, who were allowed to inherit. They, were, uh, they went to Moses. They said, our, our, our dad didn't have sons. We'd like to inherit our dad's property. Why not? And Moses went to the Lord, and the Lord said, why not? And, and so the daughters of Zelephahed were allowed to inherit their father's property. They were given full legal right to own property and to, and to inherit as such. And that story has become very important uh, in Israelite history, in modern Israelite history. And so Terza and Noah, two of the daughters of Zelephahed, are uh, very popular names in Israel because uh, it reflects the dignity that the Bible gives to women. And, and so this is a story that I think is, is more important than we realize. It's a story that's repeated in the Bible three times, which probably ought to cue us into the fact that it's important. Um, and uh, so we ended up naming our daughter Noah, N-O-A, and it gives us this great opportunity, because people always ask us why her name is N-O-A. It gives us this great opportunity to talk to our friends about the dignity that the Bible gives to women. But that seems like a strange story to, to most people today. Most people in our culture think that the Bible is a force of oppression, which is a relatively new idea. I think you'd only find people in the last 40 years who'd say that. For most of human history, the Bible has been viewed as a force of liberation for women. So Miranda, I was wondering if you could talk to us about that, talk to us about the impact that the Bible had on the status of women in the ancient world and that it continues to have today. Absolutely. So I think the best place to start when we talk about men and women is to go back to Genesis. And so we see in Genesis 1, 27, where it says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And so I would say, and I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but I do believe that that first word man in Genesis, God created man in his own image is talking about mankind or humanity. 
And so both, what we find there is that both man and woman are image bearers. They are made in the image of God. They are both like God. Uh, they both represent God. They both have value and importance to God. And both we see have like in Joel and then in Acts, they both give, they uh, receive at conversion, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. Yeah. They both get to be part, both men and women, both can be members of a church through baptism, both receive spiritual gifts, both are co-inheritors um, into the kingdom of God. So this, uh, this concept of being an image bearer of God is very, very significant. And I think that even we see um, this in numbers of God honoring these daughters because there were no sons that they can inherit the land and really allow the name of the father to continue on. And that gives such dignity and value to them. Um, That's the first it, recorded history and first time in recorded history that women uh, were given legal right to property. Which is huge. It's huge, yeah. And I found just a little bit of uh, a heads up. This book is uh, Evangelical Feminism and Biblical Truth an analysis of more than a hundred disputed questions. So Wayne Grudem and the Biblical Manhood and Womanhood Council, there's another book I have on the shelf. This big, thick book talks a lot about biblical manhood and womanhood. And one of the things that he, Grudem talks about, which I'll just read right out of the book, um, talking about um, this question of equality, of both men and women being equal. It, he says, Grudem says, the Bible thus corrects the error of male dominance and male superiority that have come as a result of sin that have been seen in nearly all cultures in history, in the history of the world. Whenever men are thought to be better than women, wherever husbands act as selfish dictators, wherever wives are for forbidden to have their own jobs outside the home or to vote or to own property or to be educated, wherever women are treated as inferior Wherever there is abuse or violence against women or rape or female infanticide or polygamy or harems, the biblical truth of equality in the image of God is being denied. Mm -hmm. To all societies and cultures where these things occur, we must proclaim that the very first page of God's word bears a fundamental and irrefutable witness against these evils. I thought that was so well said, um, just to read right out of that. And, and kind of to jump ahead, we see in Jesus's ministry that he includes women, he allows them, and they often uh, fund his ministry. And to go back to like this idea of the ancient um, way of thinking about men and women, that after the resurrection, one of the first people, right? The first person yep. he was a woman and that in that culture, women weren't allowed to testify, it was only men. And so the fact that it would not be, and I think I've heard you say this, Pastor Paul, in some of your sermons, that if the gospels were to be written in that culture, they would want to exclude that. Yeah. If you were making this up, you certainly wouldn't have included that detail. That's not helpful. Because they wouldn't be allowed to testify. Yeah. And so that is just another kind of um, implicit attitude. But I think for women today, we're kind of on the other aspect of that. And so I have like really briefly, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but we could look at the history of the last 120 years of the different waves of feminism and how that is, we almost have to um, 
reorient ourselves when we're thinking about biblical manhood and womanhood. So the first wave is talking about property and voting. The second wave of feminism in the 60s is really involved with like um, sexual reproduction. Like and during this time, the pill uh, birth control is invented along with Roe versus, Roe versus Wade and abortion. The third wave, which some really see as starting in the 90s, has a lot to do with sexual harassment in the workplace. And then some would say the fourth wave is like the Me Too movement that's going on right now. Often what we find in feminism, just very generally, is that to, uh, to really honor a woman is to oppress a man. To say that if a woman was in office, you know, we wouldn't be deal dealing with the pandemic the way that it is, or we wouldn't have this kind of economic crisis. And I don't think that that uh, on the other side, I, I bring up that historical perspective just because to value and to give women dignity is not to speak ill of men. You know, I don't think that there's any room for that. So the Bible proclaims that men and women are both made in the image of God. And there's no, there's not a competition between the sexes as much a, a complementarianism and a, you know, a a gifting of each yeah that's a lot the, the viewpoint of the bible basically becomes like it's, it's it progresses over the course of the canon but becomes that men and women are equal but different yes and that was revolutionary at the time because the cult the surrounding culture did not believe that men and women were equal right mm -hmm. and and that's that i think is the piece that we forget we're 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 so far into the mutations of you know the, the liberation movement as you say uh, you know, the first the first wave of feminism was largely run by Christians, but mm -hmm. then the movement in the second and third wave, you know, departed vastly from its from its Christian origins. But we're and so the, the movement is mutated to the point where we actually have a hard time understanding that the Bible was a force of revolution. When we started saying, you know, equal but different, the culture was aghast. You know, men men and women are equal. What are you talking about? Uh, Rodney Stark. Um, wrote the book, The Triumph of Christianity. And uh, he's, he's not a believer. So it's interesting. It's an interesting perspective. He's trying to figure out why was Christianity so attractive in the ancient world. And, and he says this, women were especially drawn to Christianity because it offered them a life that was so greatly superior to the life they would otherwise have led. He goes on to say women in the early Christian communities were considerably better off than their pagan and even Jewish counterparts. He says, one of the most amazing aspects of this was the co-equal expectations with regard to sexual chastity. He says, Christians regarded unchastity in a husband, so a husband who slept with prostitutes or servants or slaves, regarded unchastity in a husband as no less serious a breach of loyalty and trust than unfaithfulness in a wife. So women wanted to be, wanted to be Christians. They wanted to be married to Christians because then their husband wouldn't be sleeping with prostitutes. Uh, he wasn't allowed to be you know, beating her and being harsh with her. Uh, you know, Paul says you can't be an elder if you're a striker. Like if you beat your wife, you're not eligible. Like these were all remarkable things. And then in 1 Corinthians 7, he, he, he said, what I've heard scholars say is the most remarkable statement about sexuality in the ancient world. He said that men are to give to their wife their sexual rights. The acknowledgement that a wife had sexual rights, uh, that she had authority over her husband's body. Nobody had ever said that before. So there's this equal but different thing. Absolutely. But there's still the but different thing. Mm -hmm. And that's the piece now that 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 I think, you know, people can't wrap their head around. I've got a question here that I'll throw it to the panel. Uh, I love it when we, we get questions from the listeners. Uh, and the, the, the question is how this works out. So this equal but different piece, does that imply 
a hierarchical top-down authority structure in male-female relationships. So how, how does this work out in the home? How does this work out in the church? I'll, I'll throw that out to the panel. So I'll just say this. I don't know if the question is assuming that hierarchy is evil. Mm -hmm. I think our, our society as a whole views hierarchy as evil. The Bible right. doesn't. Um, the Bible that God has put order to the universe. There is a hierarchy in the universe. Yeah. Animals are lower than humanity. Right. Um, there's a hierarchy. Now, what God hates is the abuse of hierarchy, the abuse of the authority. Right. Um, so, yes, there is a hierarchy in the scripture, but the hierarchy in regards to men and women is not, like we were saying, a difference of equality. Right. But it's a difference of role, that the man is the head and the woman is the one who submits to the head. But that headship isn't something to beat with or to use in an authoritarian way. Yeah. I mean, like, Paul, when you were you know, making reference to those scripture passages um, about how countercultural they are, I mean, Ephesians, Ephesians 5, like for Paul to say in the Roman world to a Roman Christian, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave yeah. himself up for her. That is utterly countercultural. That's Roman right. Church, that was explosive. Right? Um, but the funny thing is, nobody likes headship, you know, or I should say today. People don't like headship until you actually uh, define it. Like, read how the Bible defines headship. It says that you got to serve your wife as Christ served the church. And you're like, to be honest with you, if that's what headship is, I mean, who wants it, right? I mean, the, the, headship is defined in the Bible as the obligation to serve teach and and lift up and protect your wife it's if if you think that's a sweet gig you, you're not paying attention yeah yeah and i think for me personally like i think a lot of people think oh you're trying to keep your male authority yeah but the reality is my, my natural inclination is to not want to leave my wife right my that's natural inclination is to be selfish and to just do my own thing not be responsible like that's what most guys are like yeah. And so the Bible's calling me out of that to say, no, no, you take responsibility for your home. You, you show commitment to your family. And that to me is just completely redeeming of what a man is supposed to be. Right. So but when it comes to the actual practical, how it works out, I, I don't think the Bible is all that explicit because I think it's going to look different in every home, every marriage. It's going to look different even in every culture. Um, you know, a lot of people have this idea that, you know, the woman needs to be in the kitchen. And no, like there are some marriages where the husband's going to be the one doing yeah. the well, Proverbs 31 woman. I mean, she's out there making money, right? Right. So, so I, so the Bible gives these principles yeah. and how that works out in your marriage could look very differently depending on who you are, your gifts and abilities. So it, it, I'm, I'm sensing a similarity here. So it's, it's kind of interesting. Like what we were talking about with eschatology. So often the, there is a narrow path. And there's a steep ditch on either side, meaning there, there are tensions that have to be held together. Uh, like we were talking about imminence, you know, the idea that Jesus could come at any moment, but also the idea that he could be, you know, thousands of years in the future. And I would say this equal but different thing is, is another one of those tensions that have to be held together. And if you get it wrong, um, I, I think if you lose the equality piece and we start treating women as second class citizens, I, I think then Christianity becomes a stench in people's nostrils. But I also think if you lose the different piece, mm -hmm. then I think we lose some of the magic, some of the beauty in Christianity. Like, uh, and, and clearly the Apostle Paul can keep these things together because the same person can say in Galatians 3, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male or female, for you are all one in Christ. If you are Christ, you are Abraham's offsprings, heirs according to the promise. So there are no second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. 
if, if you are in God through faith in Christ, then you're, a, you're a, an heir of Abraham, right? Heir to all the promises of God. Praise the Lord. And yet the same guy can say in, in, in 1 Timothy 2, he can switch to different. He can say, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority. So authority over the man. So he, he's saying, but in the church, there are going to be some different roles, right? The, the, the man is going to have a responsibility to teach. And I don't want the woman to push him out of that role. So there's this massive emphasis on equality without sacrificing differentness, which is just so hard to keep together. Anybody want to pump pump in on that? Maybe provide the perspective from marriage, the equal but different piece. Any any the question I assume relates to both the church and and marriage. Nobody is brave enough to jump yeah, in here, Pastor Mark. I think that, I mean, the, 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 a big piece of the puzzle there, or a big piece of this is, is the sense of, of responsibility um, before God um, for, for a man and a woman who are linked together. Um, you know, it's very interesting when, and everybody knows the story of the deception in the garden. And it's very interesting. Eve is the one who is deceived. Eve is the one who takes. Eve is the one who eats. Eve is the one who gives to Adam. God shows up. Who does he come looking for? He doesn't come looking for Eve. If God um, said men and women are, are equal and the same, he would have said, Eve, what have you done? But he comes and he says, where's the man? Yeah. And he says, why have you done? And it's Adam who has to answer. Um, right from the beginning, from the moment sin enters into the equation, God is dealing with the man saying, you are the one who is responsible um, there's going to be consequences for both. I, I think there's something really important there to say this is not just liberty for the man and mm. and uh, slavery for women. This is, men, you are responsible and, and God is going to call you to account for, for how you how you deal with your wives and your families. When everybody, whenever somebody asks me what male headship looks like in a marriage, I just say, just go read John 13, right? See Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. I mean, that's that's the job, you know. Wash your wife in the water of the word. Jesse, you jumping in? Oh, you're you're muted. Oh, I, I I think Kathy Keller actually wrote something in her book. Is it mean the meaning of marriage? Uh, I'm trying to remember. Uh, they have a book together on marriage. Yeah. Yeah. So Tim and Kathy Keller, and I think her one of her main points in that book is that uh, that both the spouse, both spouses actually play the Jesus role, just different mm -hmm. aspects of it. So for example, a husband should love his wife as Christ loves the church, but the, the church submits just as the son does yeah. in his economy to the father. What, is, what, what was the son's life all about? It was all about doing, doing the will of the father, submitting mm -hmm. to him. And so there's, there, there really is not a sense that uh, the man gets to imitate Jesus, but the wife doesn't. Uh, but there is this great dignity given to women that they they get to imitate Christ's submission uh, yeah. to to the to the Father, and the, and that's a good a good submission. Yeah, that's good. We get to make of our marriages a gospel drama. That's a good Absolutely. word. I think Paul practically, or sorry, if you want to move on, we can move on. No, no, it's great. because uh, I think a lot of people they they get the theology, but they struggle yeah. with the practical. And yeah, um, and I, uh, a really good illustration that Dr. Fowler gave me in class one day um, was. He said, headship is like this with my family. My, my wife was uh, telling me that she wanted to get a dog. And I kept saying, no, I don't want a dog. I don't want a dog. And she kept insisting. So finally, he gave in. 
And he said, fine, I'll give you permission to get a dog. So she comes home with the kids with a dog and they have it for several months. And about several months later, she comes in and says, honey, I, I regret having the dog. <laughs> he said, he said an abusive headship in that moment would be, I told you so. <laughs> but instead he said, as the responsible one, as the, the leader of the home, I gave my approval and it was not a moment for me to look down upon my wife, but to say, okay, let's work through this together. And I thought that captured so well, like he took on the ownership, even though he didn't want the dog, he took on the ownership, even after his wife was like, I don't want the dog anymore. Right. Um, and he didn't shove it down her throat. So yeah, yeah headship is responsibility and service. Yeah, yeah, well said. Um, I, I don't think this will take a ton of time. And, and that so I think we're, we're going to be okay, uh, time wise, but I would like to just hit that really bizarre passage we ran across in Isaiah this past week in Isaiah 14. Maybe the passage isn't bizarre. Maybe it's the, the sort of history of interpretation. Uh, history, or Isaiah uh, 14, verses 12 to 15 says this. How are you fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the dawn? How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Um, there, there's, there's a history of interpretation that understands that as a reference to the fall of Lucifer. Um, and, and, and yet when you read the text, uh, I, I remember when I first started doing the RMM Bible reading passage, you're going through our Bible reading plan. You're going through Isaiah every year. And every year I'd read that and I'd be like, I know that's supposed to be about Lucifer, but I'm not seeing it. It sure looks for all the world like it's a, an oracle against, you know, some arrogant king of Babylon. Mm -hmm. um, when you read it in its context, that's what it sounds like. And, and yet you, you hear all the time that this is the fall of Lucifer. So Peter, help us out. Uh, what is this about and, and how should we be understanding this, this passage? Yeah. Um, so, you know, I haven't studied this text thoroughly, but I think, Paul, you, you hit it on the top of the nail there. Um, you know, in chap, uh, beginning of chapter 14, you have this focus on the restoration of Israel, and then you have this Israel's remnant taunts Babylon. So, and, and, and you see in verse 3 and 4, when the Lord is giving you rest from your pain and turmoil and the hard service which, with which you were made to serve, he's speaking about Israel, you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. Yeah, but I think we could argue very just the literal context is in reference to the king of Babylon. And I would say by extension, Babylon itself, right? Babylon is the great enemy of God's people. Um, so in the media context, it's really speaking about human pride. Um, in, in one sense, this text describes almost every human heart to a certain degree, right? We want to sit on the throne of God, but the media context is referring to Babylon and the king of Babylon. I do think that it's kind of like when we got into the whole topic of the literal meaning and the spiritual meaning, even with yep. Christ in the Old Testament, I do think this could, could point to in some form um, Lucifer, the reality of Satan, in that the, the Babylon becomes a metaphor in the scripture. Yes, um, that's all true. the way into Revelation. And, and Babylon is basically the, the city, everything that uh, is against and opposes God. Yeah. And so you see that through Revelation with the beast and yeah. the dragon and, the woman, and Babylon is tied to all that. 
So in one sense, you could say that that behind all of that is, yeah, this this clearly could be pointed to, to a deeper spirituality, the demonic realities at work, even in the King of Babylon. Um, that's how I would take it in that sense. I don't know what all the controversy uh, in the past has been about it. I'm guessing it's regarding that, but um, that's how well, I think. I, I suppose you're probably right in the sense that, that, that there is, you know, that typological uh, meaning to it. I think that's legit because by the time you get to Revelation, Revelation 17, et cetera, you've got the horror of Babylon. So yes, where, where I think some of the controversy comes is, are the details of this particular oracle to be understood as describing the historical fall of Lucifer? Right. right. Um, did, you know, did he uh, want to ascend and was he cast down to hell? Is that what this is describing? Mm -hmm. yeah. um, it's, uh, it's interesting. And it's, it's kind of fun if you've got access to some old commentaries to, to actually go through and, and, and see how people are, are reading this passage. Jesse, are you jumping in? Yeah, you know, Luke 10, a lot of people look to Luke 10 and say, G Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And they'll say, that's what this verse is about. It's him falling from lightning. Obviously, uh, even in the New Testament, we, we see the imagery of star as symbolizing yep. an angel. It's des describing an angel in Revelation 1, I believe. Also, you see it in Matthew. I, I think this, I know it's probably controversial as well, but I think that star is an angel um, in, in, uh, in Matthew. Well, certainly in Revelation nine, stars yeah, certainly, certainly yeah. Revelation nine. Now, what's curious is in in Revelation we actually get Jesus as described as the morning star. Yep, that's right. And of course, Jesus is no angel, and and here we have the day star. So I don't know if there's there might be some parallel there. I don't. I, I this is above my pay grade, I think. But I I don't I don't know how we might say Babylon typologically points to Jesus. But certainly Jesus did rise, uh, his throne did rise above the stars, and he went to the, the pit of Sheol, right? He went to the realm of the dead. He truly died. Um, and so uh, I'll leave that up to you guys to, to fit the pieces together. But I see Daystar as Jesus in Revelation. I've well, it, it is interesting. You know, I, I, I don't know if, uh, if you guys have this experience, but did you ever hear D.A. Carson's voice in your head? <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's like my theological bumper rail. And one of the things uh, he reminds us with respect to biblical imagery is that that's why context is so important because there, there's imagery in the Bible that is used for both Jesus and the devil, but obviously in contrasting ways. Like <laughs> Jesus is described as, as the lion of Judah, but then also, you know, the devil is the lion. So lion can be devil, lion can be, can be Jesus. Uh, you know, white horse can, you know, can be a variety of things, lamb. So all, all that is to say, you kind of have to look at the context and, and, and ask yourself the question, what, what is this context uh, referring to? Yeah, before you, but you're right. The imagery is compelling and uh, the interpretations are legion. Mark, were you jumping in? I could jump in for a second. I mean, I, I think that um, the, the devil, Satan, um, is, is not very original in his uh, works and deception. And I, I'm, I, I want to say that very carefully. Uh, what I mean by that is, is he uses, he doesn't have to come up with new tricks. He, he continually uh, brings people down with, with pride. And mm, so yeah. I think we do hear the echo here. And I think that's probably where this interpretation has come from that uh, we see something of the, of the nature of Satan and the nature of the devil who over and over again, seems to have a, a desire to, usurp God and mm. tempt people into that same thing. He does it with Adam and Eve. He, yeah. he does it throughout 
history. And that's probably where that passage has taken on that context. Just for fun, because this is the sort of thing that amuses me. Uh, this is a window into my brain. But uh, here, let me read to you what Calvin said about this passage. It's just marvelous. He says, the exposition of this passage, which some have given, as if it referred to Satan, has arisen from ignorance. Right? Calvin doesn't ever leave any doubt where he stands. For the context plainly shows that these statements must be understood in reference to the king of the Babylonians. But when passages of scripture are taken up at random, and no attention is paid to the context, we need not wonder that mistakes of this kind frequently arise. Yet it was an instance of very gross ignorance to imagine that Lucifer was the king of devils and that the prophet gave him this name. But as these inventions have no probability whatsoever, let us pass by them as useless fables. So that is the correct answer that I was waiting for. <laughs> Question, do we yeah. know which king of Babylon? So it made me think of Daniel, Daniel 4 and King Nebuchadnezzar and the, you know, the stump being cut down. Now, I don't know the time frame of like when this, like were Isaiah and Daniel contemporaries, I think. Uh, no, no, no. So so Isaiah was was writing uh, long, long before long. Daniel lived. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So I've, I've seen commentators assume that the ultimate, you know, sort of manifestation of this was, or at least one manifestation of, or one fulfillment of this prophecy was that incident in Nebuchadnezzar's life. That's a, that is a, a fairly common, in fact, I think that's one of the things that Machir says here, uh, that that was the immediate fulfillment of this oracle. Yeah. Okay. I'm not crazy. That's, that's good. Someone uh, smarter than me saw that connection. That's what I hear. Well, I personally, I love what Matthew Henry says. I'm going to read one more. So this is kind of where I would land too. Matthew Henry says this. So he quotes, thou hast said in thy heart, like Lucifer, he says, I will ascend into heaven. Here is the language of his vain glory, borrowed, borrowed perhaps, perhaps from that of the angels who fell. So what, what Henry says is this, this is about the king of Babylon, but it's being described in language borrowed from the fall of Lucifer, perhaps. Um, meaning he he's seeing this pattern uh, and, he, and he's saying it's it's as you know as Mark as you were saying it's the age-old temptation to arrogance to vain glory and that in essence all of our falls uh, mirror in some sense the fall of, of Lucifer so he would say there's an indirect you know borrowing of imagery but it is immediately about the king of Babylon so I thought that was interesting all right. Well, we, we need to move on from there. Uh, we're coming near to the end of our time. Mark, I thought uh, for our closing psalm this week, we could take a look at Psalm 72. Uh, many of our listeners might know that uh, Canada's national motto actually is drawn from Psalm 72. Psalm 72, verse 8 in the old uh, Latin Vulgate, a mari usque ad mari, uh, from sea to sea. Uh, ultimately, this, this psalm looks forward to the reign of Christ. Uh, but um, our national motto, may he have dominion from sea to sea, uh, is sort of a double entendre. It's, it's meant to reflect our aspirations to build a, a dominion that would stretch all the way from the East Coast to the West Coast. And I think, didn't, didn't they recently add another ad mari, uh, so from sea to sea to sea? Mm -hmm, I think is so. that the, didn't they update the motto a couple of years ago because of the Arctic? I think that's true. Anyway, maybe that's true. Someone will look it up on Google. Uh, but it's a double entendre that we had this aspiration of building a dominion that stretched from sea to sea. But it also reflected the, the Christian hope of many of the founders that, that this nation would be under the lordship of Jesus Christ. 
So anyway, I thought it would be a, a good psalm, maybe Mark, for you to walk us through, and then we'll pray, use it to pray our way out. Yeah. So I'll I'll read it to you. It, it's interesting in that the authorship is a little bit in question because it's of Solomon at the beginning, but at the very end it says the Psalms of David are ended. Yeah. But the one thing I would leave with the hearer as I read this, and I won't give a long introduction, but uh, it's very interesting. We we ultimately see this as pointing not to Canada. Um, not to David or Solomon or any of their sons, but to Christ, and that's right. But the thing that we also should see is that Israel constantly sees their kings as regents mm -hmm. and not as ultimate sovereigns. They are yeah. ruling in place of the ultimate sovereign who is God. And so in that way, I would love for it to apply to Canada, that our rulers would rule as regents in place of the ultimate sovereign. So let me read this for you. Uh, of Solomon. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountain bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures, and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like the rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days, may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May the desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayers be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land. On the tops of the mountain may it wave, may its fruit be like Lebanon, and may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever, his fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him, all nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever, may the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Amen, amen, amen. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. I thought this would just be a neat psalm just for bringing the various threads of our conversation to an end. You know, we've been talking about eschatology. This is the ultimate goal, right? This is the, the ultimate eschatology, the, the kingdom of Christ on this earth, uh, the, the prosperity and the renewal of all things, all nations glad under the sovereignty of the king, the greater son of David. So uh, towards that end, let's pray both for Canada, 
for the United States, for both our great countries, uh, particularly as we struggle through this difficult time. So let's pray together. Oh, Heavenly Father, uh, we would pray, give the King your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal Son. Give dominion to Jesus Christ. Thy kingdom come. Uh, thy will be done. Lord, may he judge the people with righteousness, the poor with justice. May he defend the cause of the poor, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. Oh God, how we reign for, or how we long for the righteous reign of Jesus. Lord, we we put no confidence in uh, the the kings, the leaders, the prime ministers, the presidents of this world. Lord, they're just they're just men. They're just women. They're dust. Lord, they're frail. Lord, we do pray for them. Uh, Lord, we pray that they would they would look to Jesus, and that they would lead um, as as they reflect upon who he was as a leader, uh, that they would think about what it is to, to serve, to, to, to administer justice, what it is to know the Lord. Uh, Lord, I, I pray that they would uh, submit gladly to the Lordship of Christ and uh, from that place bring uh, leadership to our country, Lord, that they would be the true leaders that Scripture talks about, those who who punish the wrongdoer, uh, but provide conditions for human flourishing that 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 uh, reward the righteous and and punish the wicked, Lord. That they would uh, seek the cause of of justice. That they would cause the land to flourish. But Lord, we know even as we pray for our leaders, and we do, Lord, we ask that you'd give them great wisdom during this difficult time. Even as we pray for them, Lord, we understand that their leadership will never. Uh, achieve the level of prosperity, the level of blessedness that will only be possible when Jesus reigns over all things for the glory of the Father forever. So that's what we pray for. Uh, Lord, we don't know whether it, uh, it will come about immediately soon as a result of some cataclysm that will catch so many off guard. We don't know. We know that uh, the Son of Man will come like a thief in the night, um, like Noah and his flood. Lord, we uh, we know it could happen that way, it will happen that way, but we also know it could it could happen many, many, many years from now. We don't know. Lord, I pray that we would use the time wisely, that we would pursue our own purity and sanctification, and that we would count the patience of the Lord as salvation, that we would just use every second you give to us to, to knock on the doors of the hearts of our friends and loved ones with the gospel, to invite them to have peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to make use of this time. We don't know when the king will come, but we know he will come. And Lord, we welcome it. We long for it. We say, come, Lord Jesus. We are, we are ready. We long for your appearing. Uh, we will be glad under your sovereignty. We will rejoice in your prosperity. We will give you praise for endless days. And Lord, how we long for that and how we ask for that now. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thank you, brothers and sisters. Thank you for being with me. And uh, thank you, listeners. Uh, we had a few questions come in there at the end. I actually looking at them, it looks like we covered them. Uh, so hopefully you'll be able to maybe even to go back in the timeline and listen to the conversation again. There were a couple more questions about the practical outworkings of, uh, of, of complementarianism or this idea of equal and different. There was a question about the relationship between Lucifer and the king of Babylon. I think we did cover that. Uh, but again, thank you for those questions. Thanks for engaging with us. And uh, we will look forward to seeing you again next Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So good night and God bless you all. You